My name is Fabricio Los Alvarado. I was born in Matagalpa, Nicaragua, in an evangelical Christian home. At the age of 10, I became an adopted son of Canada, leaving my parents behind due to war. When I was about 15 years old, I met my spiritual guide, Rosa Maria Cortez Figueroa, and her brother, Guillermo. And um, while attending a radical church that preached hell before salvation, I found that I struggled with my sexual identity and I walked away from the faith and began to walk in Satan's territory. I felt that uh, there was no hell, that there was no condemnation, that the Bible was a book filled with mistakes and errors without realizing that I was walking away from our Lord. When I was about 36 years old, I lost my, my, my father to an illness. Four days preceding his funeral, I lost my mother as well. So I had to bury both of my parents within a week. I remember entering my mother's room before I returned to Canada. And I found an old book in her nightstand with highlights. So I decided to bring it back to Canada. In uh, May 2017, I lost my brother. And at that time, my heart saddened because I knew that my brother, father, and mother had all died in Jesus Christ, except me. So the big question at that, point, at that moment in my life was, what will happen the moment I, I die? It happens that one day I opened my, my mother's uh, old book, the Bible, and that day, it was a very special day because the word of the Lord began to touch my heart. And immediately I called my, my sister and I asked her, Sephora, do, do I really have to marry a woman in order to be saved? And my sister said to me, Fabricio, no, you just have to come to Jesus Christ in repentance. He will wash away all your sins. Turn to him in celibacy and you'll see how your life will change. At that point, I knew, I felt in my heart, I had a shot at salvation. I went back to my spiritual guide and I told her, please find a church for me. And she found Center Street Church. I told my brother to come to service with me, to please accompany me. Walking into Center Street Church was, uh, it was terrifying. Satan had inflicted fear in my heart, a fear of rejection. And, uh, and I told my brother, you know, the Lord is asking me to, to come in. And I did. And I remember being at the back of the church and I cried throughout the service. And I approached the pastor and, um, and he prayed for me. And that was, the most amazing moment in my life. I was baptized February 14th. I knew that I was fulfilling God's commandment. My life has changed tremendously. I've been washed away from all my sins in salvation. I feel like a new man, like a new person in Christ. I don't belong to darkness anymore. And now that I am in, in Jesus Christ, I feel fulfilled because I know that no matter what happens, he will be always be with me. That nothing, not demons, not the creation, not angels, no one will ever keep me away from his love. And that makes me so happy to wake up and to know that our Heavenly Father in Jesus Christ with our the Holy Spirit are watching over me, watching all over my family. And I have that hope now that I will be joining my parents one day because he says that as long as we believe in him and we have faith, we will never know death. We will go from physical death to eternal life in him. And that makes me very happy.
What a wonderful testimony of the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. Well, happy Resurrection Weekend to all of you. A number of years ago, I received a call from a friend asking if I would visit a young wife and mother that was in a Calgary hospital. She was from out of town, and she had just been diagnosed with a very serious type of cancer. I visited with her a number of times, and on one of those occasions, she said, Pastor Henry, if I don't make it through these treatments, is that it? I mean, what do I tell my kids? She said, you've battled cancer. What, what do you believe? Is this life all that there is? Well, we talked about a number of things, but the main thing I said to her was, I believe that Jesus died and rose again, and because he lives, after this life, I too shall live with him forever in the next life, along with all those who have put their trust in him. On the other hand, I said, if Christ has not been raised, then this life is it. End of story. You see, our hope as Christians hinges on Jesus and the deep conviction that he rose from the grave and is very much alive today. Atheist Richard Dawkins has said, if the resurrection is not true, Christianity becomes null and void. And he's right. The reason that Christians take the resurrection so seriously and keep talking about it and defending it, especially during the Easter season, is because the Christian faith is built on the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, over the years, I have talked personally with hundreds of people about what they believe about Jesus, and most have told me that they have high regard for the man Jesus, but they do not believe that he is alive. And when I asked them how they came to that conclusion, a few said, well, it's just what I believe. But most acknowledged that they really didn't know why, nor had they really uh, examined the evidence. And how tragic that is to dismiss the greatest event in history without even considering the evidence. Well, that's the focus of my message today, to give some compelling evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And right up front, I want to thank uh, the following apologists and scholars for their helpful insights, including Dr. Gary Habermas, Michael Lycana, and Lee Strobel. But before we get into it, I'm going to invite you to stand and join with me in dedicating our time in God's Word to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that the resurrection means to us. And I pray that you will now focus our minds, Lord. You would open our eyes to the truth of who you are, that hearts would be softened and that lives will be changed both now and for eternity. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. On November 13th, 1998, Michelle Trudeau, younger brother to... Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was hiking in the Kootenai Mountains with three of his companions. On the way down to the park entrance, an avalanche overwhelmed the group, carrying Trudeau and another friend out into the frigid waters of the lake. His friend managed to swim back to shore, but Trudeau was just too far out to get back, and he succumbed to the lake's near-freezing uh, water. Now, to my knowledge, no one has ever disputed the fact that Michelle Trudeau died that day. We believe the news reports and the testimony of Michelle's friends. And yet I think I can say with a high degree of certainty that no one who's listening to me today was there that day and witnessed Michelle Trudeau drown. Our belief regarding this tragedy is based on the first-hand experiences of others and the truthfulness of their word. We simply accept it as fact of history. 
as we do the tragic loss of over 3,000 lives on September 11th, 2001, or the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in 1963, or Abraham Lincoln in 1867, or Julius Caesar in 44 BC. Even though we weren't there, we hear the testimony of the witnesses or read the conclusions of those who interviewed the witnesses and investigated the details, and we accept it as historical fact. Now, here's the thing. Many people today have no problem accepting as historical fact that Jesus was a real person, a great teacher who did wonderful works, and who was arrested, crucified, and buried. However, they do have a problem accepting the resurrection of Jesus as historical fact. Not because there's a lack of eyewitnesses or good evidence for the resurrection, but because they have a worldview that does not believe in a personal God or that miracles are possible. They believe there must have be some logical explanation because, you see, dead people don't rise. End of argument. In other words, their presuppositions prevent them from accepting the evidence of history. So what is a presupposition? It is a narrative that you assume or believe before you actually examine the evidence, like miracles don't happen. And dead people don't rise. Well, Dr. John Montgomery, he writes, the only way that we can know whether an event can happen is to see whether in fact it has happened. The problem with miracles, he says, must be solved in the realm of historical investigation and not in the realm of philosophical speculation. In other words, we need to go to the historical evidence, to the eyewitness accounts and the events, and let them fall into place rather than put them into place according to our preconceived notions. For example, the view that dead people don't rise presupposes that science has somehow demonstrated that no one can rise from the dead. Well, that's just not true. The resurrection can't be proven or disproven the way that you can prove that at sea level, water boils at 100 degrees Celsius. No, the argument for the resurrection is much more like a courtroom where the evidence is presented and weighed and the jury makes a decision. Well, that's the approach that the Apostle Paul uses in his account of the resurrection here in 1 Corinthians 15. Now you say, hold it a minute. How do I know the Bible is true and credible? Well, the short answer to your question is, the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are historical records no different than the ancient writings of the Roman historian Tacitus or the Jewish historian Josephus. Just because they are part of the Bible does not mean that they should be discredited or dismissed. I mean, even if you don't believe that they are God-inspired, they should be read the same way we read any other ancient historical document. Now, by the way, if you want to know why we believe the Bible is true and, and credible, I invite you to go to our church website and look up the Why Believe series where I make a case for the validity of the Bible. So with that in mind, I'm going to invite you to stand with me again and read Paul's account here in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. You may be seated. Now, just a little background to this passage. Notice Paul starts out in verse 3 saying, What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. So what did he receive? Well, it was a well-known creed affirming Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that we just read together. Paul likely received this creed from the Apostle Peter and James while he was visiting them in Jerusalem five or so years after the death and resurrection of Christ. Which means the early church was writing down and memorizing creeds like this and boldly proclaiming the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ just a few short years after Christ's resurrection. Now that's really significant. You see, some skeptics argue that the resurrection is a myth that the disciples made up. And yet experts tell us that it takes a minimum of two generations, typically more, but at least two generations for mythology to corrupt a solid core of historical facts. In other words, if this creed or if 1 Corinthians uh, were written, say, 100 years or 200 years after Christ's resurrection, well, then the mythology argument would have some credibility. But the fact is, all the New Testament books were completed no later than 70 AD, and Paul wrote 1 Corinthians as early as 20 to 25 years after the resurrection of Christ. And the creed that he quotes here in chapter 15 was already being circulated and recited by Christians just a few short years after the resurrection, which proves that they weren't made up, they weren't embellished over the years, they weren't tampered with or altered over the years. In fact, in verse 5 here, Paul writes that hundreds of people who witnessed the teachings and the death and resurrection of Jesus were still alive when these creeds and scriptures were written and could verify their accuracy. Paul essentially says here, you know, look, if you don't believe what's been written about Christ's death and resurrection, then ask the hundreds of people who witnessed these things firsthand. Most of them are, were still alive when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. And any skeptics could just approach these individuals, check out the creeds and scriptures uh, to see if they were accurate or not. And so with that in mind, let's drill down now into this scripture passage where Paul continues to make his case for Christ's resurrection. The first evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that he died by crucifixion and was buried. Paul writes, Christ died for our sins. You see, if we're going to make a case for Christ's resurrection, it's important that you first establish that Christ did in fact die. Now virtually, no historian disputes the fact that Christ was crucified and that he died. Yet even so, there are those who believe that Jesus did not die on the cross, but only temporary lost consciousness and was revived in the cool air of the tomb. It's called the swoon theory. But here's the thing. Roman scourging and crucifixion were extremely brutal. Many who were scourged as Christ was were injured so badly they died even before they were put on the cross. The notion 
that Jesus survived not only the scourging, the crucifixion, and the spear that was thrust in his side is incredulous in itself. But even more outlandish than this is to think that Jesus, who would have been weak, hungry, and dangerously dehydrated and low on blood, with wrists and feet that had been pierced and shattered by large Roman spikes, would somehow have performed the superhuman feat of rolling a large boulder back up a trench without a sound so as not to disturb the Roman guard who were stationed outside the tomb and then walk for miles and appear to his disciples in such a way so as to give them the impression that he was victorious over death. I mean, really, how plausible does that sound to you? After examining the historical and the medical evidence concerning Christ's death, an article in the Journal of American Medical Society in 1985 reported the following conclusion. Interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear at odds with modern medical knowledge. The evidence is clear. Jesus died on the cross and was buried in a tomb. The second evidence is this. The tomb of Jesus was and is empty. Paul writes that Christ was buried and raised on the third day. Now in Matthew 28, we read that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. When they arrived, they encountered an angel sitting on the tombstone uh, that had been rolled back from the entrance of the tomb. The earthquake, the angel, and the open tomb not only frightened the women, but also the Roman guards, so much so that they couldn't move. And then we read this. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He is risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now once again, skeptical people dispute this account because their worldview says miracles like this can't happen. The question that remains unanswered, however, is what happened to the body of Christ? Now, some believe that the enemies of Christ, the Jewish leaders or the Romans, stole the body. Yet, if they were the ones who stole the body, they could have not only put an end to the resurrection story, but also to Christianity and the church before it even got off the ground by simply announcing that Jesus' body would be on display on Main Street in Jerusalem at noon tomorrow. But you see, they didn't do that because they didn't have Christ's body or know where it was. Another theory is that the disciples stole the body and made up the story of the resurrection. But here's the thing. If the disciples stole the body and just made up the resurrection story, surely at least one of them would have come clean and told the truth while being beaten, tortured, and facing execution. Back in 1973, Chuck Colson was sentenced to prison for the part that he played in the Watergate scandal, in which a group of no more than a dozen people conspired to cover up the Watergate break-in to protect the president. He writes, I know that the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How, you ask? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years 
never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. On the other hand, Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Which leads to a third and probably the most powerful evidence for the resurrection, the disciples' radical transformation. When Jesus was arrested and then crucified, his disciples fled and hid like little frightened children. They were discouraged, they were confused, they were despairing. However, a short time later, something happened to the disciples that radically changed their lives and their convictions. Something happened that despite the threat of prison, torture, and death, gave them a renewed conviction and passion to boldly proclaim their faith and start a movement that ultimately would change the world. And that something was that they encountered the resurrected Christ. Peter, the one who on the night that Jesus was arrested was afraid to admit to a couple of servant girls that he even knew Jesus, he began to boldly proclaim the risen Christ to all who would listen just a few days after the resurrection. And tradition tells us that he died on a cross upside down for his faith in Christ. What brought about such incredible transformation in Peter's life? Well, he encountered the risen Christ. Thomas, the one who doubted that Jesus was alive and needed to see him in person to be convinced, when Jesus appeared to him and let him touch his nail-scarred hands at his side, Thomas dropped to his knees in worship and said, my Lord and my God. And he spent the rest of his life boldly proclaiming the truth of Christ's resurrection in South India until he was tortured and put to death for his beliefs. So what brought about such incredible transformation in Thomas? He personally saw and touched the risen Christ. You see, a resolve and commitment like that does not come about by believing a lie, especially a lie that the disciples would have been involved in creating. We know some people, like religious extremists, they will die for what they believe to be true, but healthy people will not die for what they clearly know to be false. Which leads us to the fourth evidence for the resurrection. The thousands of people who became followers of Christ in a very short period of time See, the disciples weren't the only ones who were transformed through encountering the risen Christ. The early church was birthed and grew like wildfire because Jesus also appeared to hundreds of others. We know, for example, that in a relatively short period of time, over 10,000 people, mostly Jews, became followers of Jesus in Jerusalem alone. Now, it's important we understand how unlikely it was for this to happen to so many Jews at the time in Jerusalem in that day. You see, the Jewish people held firmly to their faith and to their traditions. It was woven into the very fabric of their religious and social structure as a people and also as a nation. For thousands to walk away from their faith and in many cases their extended family and friends to follow a man who had just been put to death by crucifixion defied both logic and common sense. And yet the fact that thousands did in fact walk away from their faith and uh, family and so forth virtually overnight that they abandoned, for example, the Sabbath and the sacrificial system in order to follow Christ, 
is powerful evidence that they either encountered the risen Christ themselves or they knew someone personally who did. Make no mistake, Christ's resurrection appearances were real historical events that revolutionized people's lives. The fifth evidence for the resurrection of Christ is how almost overnight some of his skeptics and also some of his enemies became followers of Jesus. One such skeptic was James, the half-brother of Jesus. If you read the Gospels, you find that none of Jesus' brothers believed in him or in his miracles. Now, we shouldn't be too surprised by this because, I mean, if your older brother was perfect in every way, you know, adored by thousands of people and, almost, and also made grandiose claims about himself, would you even like him, much less follow him? Probably not. Perhaps most telling was an incident that occurred when Jesus was on the cross. Jesus, the oldest son, entrusted the care of his mother Mary not to his half-brother James, as was the Jewish custom for the oldest son to do in such circumstances, but no, he entrusted his mother Mary to his disciple John, which tells us that James and the rest of the family had essentially abandoned Jesus. And yet sometime later, we read in Acts 15 and also in Galatians 1 that something dramatic happened to James. Not only was he a follower and an apostle of Jesus, but he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. In fact, James was so thoroughly convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. Jewish historian Josephus wrote, when James was given the choice between renouncing Christ or to be put to death, James chose to die. So what brought about this radical transformation in James? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 7 tells us the risen Christ appeared to him. Not only were skeptics like James transformed when they saw the risen Christ, but so were Jesus' enemies, including a Pharisee named Saul, later renamed Paul. Paul was offended by the gospel of grace. It was blasphemy as far as he was concerned, and so he was on a mission to wipe out Christians and the Christian faith. But then Paul met the living, resurrected Christ, and basically overnight, he went from seeing Christ as a false prophet to becoming the greatest champion of Christ, the gospel, and the church, boldly testifying, for to me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Again, how does one explain such a transformation? How does one explain a Jewish religious leader, a devoted Pharisee yet, and a zealous defender of the Jewish faith who persecuted and killed Christians, now suddenly worships and follows Jesus. Because the risen Christ appeared to him. Now down through history as people have examined the evidence for the resurrection and embraced its truth, they too were transformed. One such person was Dr. Simon Greenleaf, former professor of law at Harvard University. He helped bring the law school into prominence and has been called the greatest authority on legal evidences in the history of the world. He was a skeptic and he loved to mock Christians in his law classes. Some of his students, however, didn't let him get off the hook. They challenged him again and again to take the principles that he was teaching on the laws of legal evidences and apply them to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, he finally took on 
the challenge. And as a result of his findings, he wrote this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the best established facts of history according to the rules of evidence administered in a court of justice. Another such person was Sir Lionel Lacou, who is listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the most successful trial lawyer in the world. He was knighted twice by Queen Elizabeth and eventually became a justice on his country's highest court. When he was confronted with the claims of Christ, he decided to apply his expertise in law and logic to examine the resurrection of Christ. His conclusion was this. I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. So here we have two non-Christian experts concluding that the evidence for the resurrection is overwhelming, one of the best established facts of history. But you see, like Peter, James, Paul, and the other disciples, they knew that it was totally illogical and inconsistent to just file this truth away and ignore its implication on their lives. They knew that Christ's resurrection demanded a response, that they needed to align their lives to what they knew to be true. And both these men did just that by placing their total trust in the living Christ. Which leads me to ask, what will you do with Jesus and the evidence for his resurrection? You see, what you believe about the resurrection has huge implications for this life, but also for your eternity. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul, like a trial lawyer, he continues to make his case for the resurrection by spelling out the implications in a very frank and forthright way. If I was to summarize his argument, it would go something like this. Dear fellow sojourner, perhaps you are ignoring or suppressing or explaining away the truth of the resurrection because you don't want God intruding into your life or messing with your life. That is your choice, and you have every right to do that, but it is important you realize the implications of your decision. For example, says Paul in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, then you are still in your sins, which means you are still saddled with the shame, guilt, and regrets of your past, and you will be the rest of your life. If Christ has not been raised, then there is no afterlife, no hope of you being raised from the dead, which also means after this life, you will never see your loved ones again. They are gone forever. If Christ has not been raised, then you are only a product of chance. You have no God-ordained purpose or meaning in life. And if that's the case, says Paul in verse 32, we may as well eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, we may as well party hard, live for ourselves, and get all that we can for ourselves. Now, I know all of this sounds pretty dark and grim, but these are the logical implications if you ignore or dismiss the living Christ. In fact, in verse 19, Paul writes, if our hope is only in this life, we of all people are to be pitied. We're to be pitied because one day we'll be devastated and despairing 
when we realize that we miss the whole point of life, that we gave our lives to temporary things that don't matter and that don't last. But, says Paul in verse 20, he says, it doesn't have to be that way because Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Amen? And that makes all the difference. Because Jesus lives means he is who he claimed to be, our Lord, God, and King, worthy of all of our worship and devotion. Because Jesus lives means that he atoned for our sins and that we can be reconciled with God. It means that our past sins and our regrets and the train wrecks of our lives need not define us. We no longer need to carry the shame and the guilt of our past. Because Jesus lives means we are not a chance collection of prebiotic soup, but we are his special creation with a God-giving calling in life. Because Jesus lives means that the same power which raised him from the grave is available to you and to me today to live in freedom and in victory over our failures, our problems, and our hardships. We serve a living Savior, a living Lord, which means that Jesus is part of every situation, every equation, and with Christ, all things are possible. Friends, Christ does not have the final word. I'm sorry, cancer does not have the final word. COVID does not have the final word. Relational breakdown does not have the final word. Bankruptcy does not have the final word. No, Jesus has the final word. Amen. Amen. Because Jesus lives means that Jesus is not one of many ways to God. No, he is the way to the Father and to eternal life as he claimed to be. Because Jesus lives means that he is the truth as he claimed. And what he taught is true. And the Bible he inspired is true, which means we can trust his promises and his principles and his precepts for life. Now it also means we can't ignore or explain away scripture passages that we don't like or that we find offensive. Tim Keller says the issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like what the Bible teaches, but whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus is alive, then he is Lord and God, and like it or not, you're going to have to accept all that he said. On the other hand, if Jesus is still in the grave, then you need not worry about anything he said. So here's the thing. If you believe Jesus lives, then live like it's really true, like you really mean it. Paul says you can't be a Christian and leave Jesus in the tomb. If Jesus lives, it makes no sense to be partially surrendered to him or to keep him at a safe, comfortable distance. Follow him with full devotion. Live every day with the awareness that he is with you, wanting to help you, to guide you, to empower you, to be his representative in our world, and to carry out the assignments that he gives you. Now, if you, like the young mother with cancer that I, I, I spoke of earlier, if you're wondering if this life is all that there is, I want to remind you of what I told her. Because Jesus lives means that this life is not the end. Believe it, friend. Because Jesus rose from death, so shall we. 
if we put our trust in him. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Friends, this is our living hope. The founder of every great religion is in their grave right now. Confucius is in his grave. Buddha is in his grave. Muhammad is in his grave. But not so my Jesus. His tomb is empty. He alone possesses the power over the grave, and that means he is worthy of all of our worship and our trust. Folks, I'm trusting in Jesus Christ. I'm following Jesus. I'm living for him because he's alive. I know he's alive, not only because of the evidence that I've just presented to you, but because I've experienced him. I've experienced his presence and his power at work in and through my life. In the midst of some of the most dark and challenging seasons of life, I have found that he is a rock upon which I can stand. He is a fortress, a shelter in times of raging storms. And that he's always with me, whether in the valley or on the mountaintop. Friends, Resurrection Sunday means that the living, all-powerful Jesus is walking at your side during the weariest roads of life. The Bible says that the same power which brought Jesus back to life is the power which can change you and me from the inside out, the power which can restore your marriage, your family, your relationships, and your perspective and attitude in life. You know, the sad reality is, it's not that Christianity is untrue. It's that for so many people, it's untried. Please don't file away the evidence I presented for future reference. Don't dismiss it or throw it away like yesterday's trash. No, the evidence, this evidence demands a response. You have to make a decision at some point in your life about Jesus. Remembering, folks, that to not make a decision is to make a decision. Wherever you are right now, I invite you to close your eyes. Turn to God, however you perceive him to be. Have a one-on-one with him just for a moment and ask him, Lord, what are you saying to me? What do you want me to do about it? Just spend a moment with him right now. with a prayer, not unlike the one I prayed many years ago that began my relationship and friendship with Jesus and changed the entire trajectory, not only of my life, but my eternity. You may still have all kinds of questions, but if you want to begin a friendship with the living Jesus today, I invite you to pray this prayer along with me right now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Thank you for loving and pursuing me all my life and for seeking to get my attention. I realize that I have a sin problem. I struggle with pride and wanting to do things my way rather than your way, and it's cost me dearly. 
I also acknowledge that I can't fix this myself. I need a Savior, a living, powerful Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace, for paying for my sins on the cross, for making a way for me to be forgiven. Please forgive me right now for my sins, my regrets and train wrecks, and set me free from them, Lord. I thank you for rising from the dead because it tells me that you are capable, you are worthy not only to save me from my sins, but to change me and make me into the person that you created me to be, but to also give me the gift of life eternal with you in heaven. I surrender to you as Lord, and I ask, Lord, that you would give me the grace to follow you faithfully from this time forward, for I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Now, if you sincerely prayed that prayer, the Bible says you are God's child by faith in him. In the spiritual realm, God took all of your sins and placed them on Jesus. And he took the perfect righteousness of Jesus and placed them on you, making you a new creation, whole and complete in the sight of God. We'd love to pray with you and encourage you, answer any questions you might have. And so after the service, please approach one of the prayer partners who will be up front here and let us know how we can encourage and pray for you. For those of you online, reach out in the chat and a host will be glad to pray with you. Also, if you prayed that prayer, help us to celebrate with you by letting us know Letting the prayer partners know, the pastors out and letting me know, and or by texting yes to the number on the screen in front of you. You know, it was because of his love and his grace that Jesus came to our planet. He lived, he taught, he served. He died and he rose again. So I'd like us to give him glory and thanks right now by responding with the timeless and the powerful hymn that reminds us of what he did for us. The old hymn, Amazing Grace. Would you please stand and join with us now?